because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. I'll get right into it today because this is the second half of my interview with Stefan Hen on the 15 points that Bill McKibben brought up during our debate. And the reason that we're doing this is because it can be very sort of overwhelming when someone makes a lot of claims and says, look, science says all this, there are 15 things, how can you dispute it? And during the debate, I made certain points about that, but I wanted to explore the the 15 points themselves to give you just an indication of how possible it is for someone to be stringing together sentences that have lots of numbers and names of studies and names of famous people, and yet be saying something 100% false, ultimately. Because it's interesting, because it sounds, it, you might think, oh, well, maybe he's getting something a little wrong, but surely it can't all be wrong. No, and it, and it can all be wrong. And hopefully that's, uh, that's an intriguing claim. And if you heard the last episode, I, I think you'll, you'll get a strong indication of that. But in any case, we've got a lot more points to go. And I, th- I think it's really interesting to see how things, uh, how things turn out. So I will talk to you, and I'll be with Stefan Hen on the other side. All right, so let's go to point eight. Point eight, it is a risk to forests. In Westerly et al. Science 2006 found that seven times more forested land now burned annually in the U.S. and that the fire season was two and a half months longer on average because it's hotter and drier. All right, Stefan, so the you know the picture we're getting here is that you know forests are becoming this larger and larger danger to human life what's the general trend of forests and forest fires well that be- depends on the point of reference i mean we've seen a recent uptick in forest fires for the united states um but compared to the 1930s it's really the numbers have really gone down. So I think in 2012 it was like just short of 10 million acres and in the 1930s it was common that it was 30, 40, 50 million acres burning. And uh, reconstructions from earlier centuries indicate that it was even higher back then. So well over the long time scale we see a, a decrease in forest fire. And what about just the, I mean, what are the different factors that go into forest fires? Because certainly, you know, the government is the manager of the forest. Presumably its actions can affect that for good or ill. It's not just as if a certain climate automatically leads to a bunch of forest fires that that burn indefinitely. Yeah, that's true. Um, Well, there are human factors, of course. I mean, you would expect with higher population density, you would get more fires. Um, that's not true for the 20th century. Um, yeah, proper forest management or lack thereof is important, of course. Um, interestingly, activists have blocked proper forest management in recent years, and that leads up to a lot of dry wood piling up in the forests, especially in California, and that leads to more severe fires. Um, the natural variability uh, depends on cycles of wet and dry years. So, for example, if you have a lot of wet years in a row, then a lot of wood grows in the forest. And then when you get a dry season, um, well, there's more fuel for the fire. And that creates a lot of natural variability from year to year. Got it. So just notice that that none of this is none of this context is even indicated. It's just there's one study in science, uh, allegedly, and the, um, no even reference point to what seven times more than than what exactly two and a the, the fire season, um, and so it's it's just this deliberately vague thing that's not meant to objectively convey reality. It's just meant to scare you and to sound scientific. Um, but if you really ask, what is the conclusion 
what is the evidence and, and demand clarity on that, it, it's a good it's a good step because it's just you know it's pretty much uh, gibberish. I mean, it's not not something you can really process. It's just it's just again something meant to intimidate you. All right, let's go to point nine. Point nine. It is a grave risk to public health. The Dara Group, September 2012, reports that global warming accounts for 400,000 deaths annually now, and that air pollution from all fossil fuels kills 4.5 million annually. That builds on a 2009 study from the Global Humanitarian Forum, finding that global warming killed 300,000 annually, and that by 2030 would be the biggest humanitarian challenge the planet faces, sickening at least 310 million people. These may be underestimates. The World Bank in 2011 found that air pollution in China alone was causing 400,000 premature deaths a year. All right, I'm going to start on this one in terms of, of big picture. This is unbelievable to me. If we look at the general trend of health and fossil fuels, it's just a, both are a dramatic upward trend in the last 150 years or so, and they're very, very... Uh, related without all of the, um, you know, the or fossil fuel power civilization is what makes possible the whole apparatus of of modern medical technology. As, as someone put it, you know, in the past, when you went to a doctor, as basically an old man in a stethoscope, and now we just have this unbelievable world of medicine and pharmaceuticals and um, you know much better quality food. So to neglect that in any analysis of health is, is completely intellectually unconscionable. And Stefan, I'll, I'll let you take it from there in terms of some of these uh, statistics about 400,000 deaths and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, the, there's no cause of death called exposure to fossil fuels or global warming. That just doesn't exist. There's no real statistics on that. Um, this is based on model calculations. And, um, well, just to give you an example, there's been a recent study about death in North America, North America from uh, the nuclear ex accident at Fukushima. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they got between 0 and 12 people died, allegedly. <laughs> Something in that dimension. So... It's really ridiculous at times. Um, well, so just to, just to jump in, the, I mean, what's going on here is is the issue of speculation. They're claiming a causal connection of this caused this, um, and I mean, study again is an ambiguous. I, I think I mentioned last show is a very ambiguous term because it it connotes that you're just looking at reality and journalistically aggregating information, whereas here it's it's you're looking at reality and making up incredibly implausible causes for things, you know, just um, where there's just tons of, of ideology and funding incentives. And of course, McKibben is only selecting the, the studies that say uh, what he wants to prove. So it's, it's, it's just helpful to, to know, though, when someone says X causes X hundred thousand deaths, you need to be really, really careful on what that is. And if it's something like cancer or being run over by a car is probably a better example, that's that's less likely to be manipulated. But if you're talking about something like the war the increase in the a global mean temperature anomaly over the decades, that is to say it's it's uh it's dubious as is a big compliment to it. Yes, and it refers generally to the problem that correlation is not causality and uh, well what you have here is um, let's say an increase in the number of um, lung diseases uh, cardiovascular diseases and then you have of course more CO2 emissions or more global warming or more particulate matter emissions and then someone gets the idea well one has to cause the other but that's not at all true. That's pure speculation. And you can see this by um, examining China, for example, um, where you get the highest increases in life expectancy over recent times and the lowest infant mortality in the biggest city. 
that have the most particulate matter and the most smog and the most emission problems and so on. Yeah, I think the China example, this World Bank, what the World Bank quote found, again, this, this, this language is so dishonest because, it's, again, it's a study that found, no, this is, is a very hypothetical speculation. In this case, it's demonstrably false because life expectancy in China has gone up dramatically over the last 20 years. And it's, it's almost directly attributable to, or it would not have been possible um, much of it, at least, would not have been possible without the dramatic increase in wealth made possible by fossil fuels. So, what what McKibben, what these studies are getting at, one one thing that makes them possible is just that they do they mix correlation and causation. But even imagine you could have some, uh, if there were any causation or whatever degree of causation there is, you have to look at the whole context of. You can't just look at the smoke of the coal plant. You have to le look at all the healthy benefits of the coal plant. And that's, in essence, what McKibben does. Just as his as his whole methodology is, he can only see negatives from the fuels that keep us all alive, and no positives. So he's he's willing to outlaw them all because, well, all he can see are negatives. And of course, he's lying about negatives or he's distorting about negatives. Of course, but the. The thing that should just put all of that in check and not allow them to get off the ground is that you need to deal with all the evidence, uh, the big picture, and that's not something he's willing to do. All right, let us look to point 10, which is starting to get into economics. Point 10, fossil fuel is a risk to economies and development. A report commissioned by 20 of the world's poorest countries and released five weeks ago found that global warming was already wiping out 1.6% of the world's GDP, that by 2030 that number would double to 3.2%, and that in the least developed countries the toll was much higher, 11% of GDP. Earlier studies show much the same. Lord Stern in England demonstrated as early as 2006 that the damage to global GDP over the century could range as high as 20%. We can see it empirically in a study by Olkin and MIT in 2012, which found that over the last 50 years, every degree of temperature increase in a country reduced economic growth 1.3%. All right. Um... Again, it's helpful to look at the big picture of, of, of fossil fuels have made possible. They're the only thing in history that's made possible modern economies, modern development. He finds it in, in, in that are making they're making possible development today. His only, his only acknowledgement of this at all, which isn't really acknowledgement, is when he says, oh, fossil fuels were useful in the past and we should be grateful to that, ignoring that they're even more useful and even more used today. So this is just, again, he's, he's completely dropping the big picture. He's dropping the positive. So anything he says is going to be, is completely disingenuous and is, is his whole conclusion is necessarily going to be wrong if he's leaving out the big picture. Um, but then, Stan, can you just talk about these, like these studies and, um, you know, what the quality or these claims and what the quality of them is? <laughs> Yes, I mean, there's so much bad thinking in this. I mean, 20 of the world's poorest countries make GDP prediction for the world. Yeah, I, I thought that was hilarious. Like, why <laughs> in the world would you... I mean, that's like saying, well, you know, the 20 worst investors in the world have this, you know, economic forecast. Okay. But that's the reason why that is. I mean, it's a probable reason. Um, I mean... A big redistribution scheme going on at the UN, and uh, poor countries have an incentive to jump on the bandwagon, of course, here. And, um, well, there's, I mean, economic predictions are hard for one year, for one century, that's impossible, of course. But uh, let's, as you said, let's look at the big picture. So we've seen slight warming since 1900, right? Nobody disputes this. And what we've seen is a drop in GDP by some percentage. No, of course not. We've seen a vast increase in GDP and in GDP per capita, of course. And um, if you say, well, for every degree C increase for every country, you get a drop, then on average, on aggregate, you would think world GDP would have gone down. 
but it hasn't. But there's a reason why there's some correlation between high temperatures and drops in GDP, and that is drought seasons for any particular country. So if you get a poor country that's depending on agriculture, and you get a drought season, let's see, let's say one or two degrees C above average, then of course you have a heavy GDP drop. And that's true for large parts of the world because they are not developed and they don't use a lot of fossil fuels. So, yeah. All right, let's go to point 11. 11, it is a risk to national security. During the Bush administration, a secret Pentagon report found that as the planet warmed, it would lead to greater conflict and that, quote, warfare could come to define human life, unquote. The Obama Pentagon has been more open. The National Defense University conducted exercises about climate change in 2009, and subsequently a variety of military analysts, experts at the Pentagon, and intelligence agencies told the New York Times that, quote, climate-induced crises could topple governments, feed terrorist movements, and destabilize entire regions. All right, well, I have a somewhat funny connection to this. Um, I know a bit, no, nothing I'm going to say is classified, but my father happens to work at the office in the Pentagon um, of this secret Pentagon report that McKibben is, is referring to. And it's just, it's such a sign of this, uh, you know, the, the, that department commissions tons and tons of reports. And like many departments, it does things that are very speculative for, for various reasons. And um, like leaving aside whether such a report is, legitimate should be commissioned and I certainly would not have commissioned such a report it's just so it is so uh, the only word is dishonest to take that little thing that little piece of speculation amidst a whole bunch of other speculation and and when talking to students at Duke University to make this fully a third of your explanation for how it's a threat to national security. Um, in terms of the big picture of fossil fuels and national security, this is something I know a bit about studying the history of oil. And the almost the decisive thing in World War I and World War II was access to oil. So insofar as McKibben is, is having a disproportionate influence on the U.S., he is essentially um, you know, trying to cripple us for all future wars, and it's unclear what he thinks should go in our planes, because at one point he was a big advocate of, of biofuels, and then those became publicly unpopular, and he hasn't said too much about them lately, but I don't know, what, you know if he wants to fly a plane with a battery or whether he knows that's impossible. But in any case, it's just, again, fossil fuels are absolutely essential to national defense, and you have to, you have to factor that in to any thinking. The idea that, that security... Um, the outlawing fossil fuel is going to lead to security. I mean, can you imagine, I'll turn this over to you, Stefan, but can you imagine the number of riots and destruction that would occur if this kind of economic damage and energy prices occurred? Yes, I mean, um, again, there's some, some speculative uh, feature in there, but two very funny things here <laughs> that Bill McKibben alleges the Bush administration leaks secret Pentagon reports and the Obama uh, Pentagon is more open. That means it openly gives away military secrets, allegedly. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, yeah, let's, but let's look at the big picture. First of all, as early as 1974, there was a CIA document um, alleging the exact same consequences like more warfare, famines, fight over territory, and so on, just with global cooling. Because the scare then for the CIA was um, a return to the conditions of the Little Ice Age, which ended in about 1850. <laughs> and uh, well, what we see here is, of course, I mean, there's a part of the intelligence community and the military that is just like every other bureaucracy. And it wants more budget and it fears budget cuts. And, well, it will create studies like this to say, well, we need more budget to be prepared for future risks, uh, whether they are real or not. And they can tell whether they are real or not. 
I mean, think of this. How to create a global strategy if the local climate change uh, will be much more important than the global climate change? Whatever will be the general trend on the aggregate for planet Earth, local changes in climate will be orders of magnitude greater in the next 100 years. So you cannot really prepare for a global increase of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 degrees C. You have to prepare for local warfare scenarios. And that's always true. That's true in a cooling world. That's true in a warming world. That's true in a perfectly, quote-unquote, stable world on the aggregate. Yeah, and that's a point that I don't think... Uh, I mean, I wish I'd, I'd stressed this a little more during the debate, just that that there's this default view of a, of a static climate. And in reality, as Stefan is pointing out, that's far from the case, not just globally, but locally. Just think about how your how variable your climate is on a daily basis, monthly, annual, etc. If it were really that changes in climate or variation in climate was this enormous war threat that just was so overwhelming, then we would already just have all kinds of climate-caused wars, whereas instead we have wars caused uh, by the usual consequences and, and causing mass poverty uh, would certainly, you know, in a very dramatic way, would certainly uh, increase, not, not decrease warfare. All right, let's go to point 12. Point 12, it is a risk to political freedom and liberty. The further we let climate change get out of hand, the more onerous the response is likely to be. Brent Rinaldi, writing in August of this year, said, climate change is a conservative's nightmare because under pressure from climate stress, even the most robust constitutional democracy may find its character threatened. Faced with more severe or frequent floods, people will become more accustomed to looking to central authorities for aid and direction. As Matt Brunig pointed out in 2011, it is a deep philosophical problem for libertarians because the consequences of climate change include, quote, damage to the property of others all over the world. All right, Stefan, I'll let you start on this one. <laughs> yeah, so allegedly uh, conservatives and libertarians now ask for uh, big government solutions to protect them from big government or something. <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, yeah, again, I mean, the sources are one guy from this side and one guy from this side. I'm not even sure most conservatives or, or libertarians would consider them part of their group. But, um, yeah, there's no evidence that climate change deals damage to the property of others and that climate change ever was in our hands. So... Yeah, I mean, it's, well, so he later in the debate, or he at the end of the debate, uses the example of the Maldives. Can you, can you talk about that example? Yeah, the Maldives allegedly might get drowned from sea level rise that is allegedly accelerating, which is not true. <laughs> so, uh, and then there's this chain of causality that McKim and others create uh, where you know, CO2 emissions in, in North America and Europe lead to sea level rise and sea level rise and drown these poor island nations. And, of course, there's, first of all, there's no connection established at all. And, um, well, the Maldives so far have not experienced uh, a lot of land loss due to um, rising oceans. I mean, again local factors are much more important. So the land can rise, the seafloor can sink or rise by geological processes and so on. And we haven't seen any island nation drowning so far. And it's not likely to happen anytime soon in the next couple of centuries. Yeah. Let me, let me talk about this idea because um, Bill was declared himself upset during the debate that, that at this point in particular... Uh, I didn't address. Now, th there's just the fact that th the um, point about a deep philosophical problem f for libertarians, um, you know, because the consequences of climate change include damage to the property of others all around the world. So there's, there's the point that there's absolutely no evidence of this whatsoever. Um, but let's, let's, um, let's assume that you could have some sort of aggregate thing where you could, I mean, let's put it this way. If there's some human cause of, of some climate change, then someone's 
it's going to damage one person's property more than it otherwise would have by definition. In the same way, it's going to keep some people's property safer than it would have because any sort of change is going to be positive for some people uh, and negative for other people. And But then does that fall under, is that is that a rights violation? And no, you have to look at it in the full context of what what are they... What, because because the thing that's causing it is a completely fundamental act of exercising your rights, namely producing energy. The deep philosophical problems for quote unquote libertarians is not that um, is not the need to cope with higher sea levels or cope with more storms to the extent that there would be any evidence of that. The deep philosophical problem would be with banning energy, which is what McKibben wants to do. So it's it's really rich to to say that, yeah, it's, it's if you believe in freedom, it's a huge problem that the climate changes and that human beings might be throwing some, you know, some bit into that whole situation, and thus you're apportioning blame. No, the the real problem is in depriving people of the freedom to produce the fundamental thing that makes everything possible, including your ability. To deal with storms. So, as at the end, I said at the end of the debate, I talked about how the Maldives needs to, need to industrialize, and this is true of the whole the whole uh, undeveloped world, which is just it's viewed as oh they should stay undeveloped, but they should also be protected from things. No, when you're undeveloped, you're not protected. So the the solution to the problems of the undeveloped world number one is to develop, and then you can be like you know then you can be like the Netherlands, where you know your country is largely below sea level, and yet you thrive. Whereas you can be well above sea level, and if you're a non-industrialized country, you're going to suffer. So, I mean, this is a, McKibben has a deep philosophical problem, a deep existential problem, a deep everything problem, because he wants to kill the industry that produces life. And he also wants to kill, you know, essentially the nuclear and hydroelectric industry, or at least, at least, uh, keep them half dead. So that is that is a really deep problem and unfortunately it's not something he's willing I mean it's not even something that he'll he'll really focus on because if you focused on what he actually what his actual conclusion is what he's actually after it wouldn't win as many converts as just bashing uh you know bashing fossil fuels attributing every problem in the world to them and pretending that there's no important big picture. There's no positives to be concerned about. Point 13, in honor of election day, fossil fuel is a risk to our democracies. Ads from this particular industry have dominated campaign spending this year, according to the New York Times in September. Fossil fuel billionaires David and Charles Koch may spend $100 million on this election. Two weeks ago, Chevron made the largest corporate donation since Citizens United to a right-wing super PAC. One result of these payoffs is that fossil fuel gets $409 billion a year globally in subsidies, six and a half times as much as clean energy. Okay. Uh, I'll do the beginning of this and you can do the $409 billion in subsidies. Uh, the, the, I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. Um, we're, we're recording this late and it's just, it's just such an insult to, I mean, it's, it's so, it's so unfair to anyone listening to this who doesn't know it. And then if you do know the information about this and the subsidies issue, it, I mean, the source he's taking it from to call them junk, um, you know, is, is not is not strong enough. But let's talk about risk to our democracies. First of all, people should be able to spend money if they earn the money. They should be able to spend it um, to communicate their views to others. So that's that's part of America. It's called freedom of speech. There's no clause in the First Amendment that says you're not allowed to exercise it. If you have a lot of money, uh, so that's one thing. And two, let's ask why are the fossil fuel industries putting so much money? Is it really because the solar industry is so competitive and has all these brilliant products, and they're trying to cripple this, you know, brilliant industry whose power source is off half the time by necessity? Or is it that you know windmills are just so efficient 
That seem, that's contradicted if you look into the data, but just by common sense, no country in the world is powered by this stuff. So the much more likely explanation, the real explanation, is that people like McKibben are persecuting the fossil fuel com companies. So instead of spending their money on investment or giving it back to their shareholders out of self-defense uh, you know, against en energy enemies like McKibben, they need to spend a lot of money so that he can't do as much damage as he already otherwise would, and and you know, so they can minimize the damage he's already done, such as with uh, blocking the Keystone Pipeline or helping uh, helping put a halt to that. So it's just no, it's the threat to our freedom are the people who are trying to shut down the fossil fuel companies, and to the extent they're spending money, that's a problem, not because free speech is a problem, but because it's a problem that they need to spend the money. Uh, now, Stefan, could you comment on the the uh, subsidies issue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, four hundred ninety-nine billion dollars. That sounds. I think it's accurate. four four hundred nine. <laughs> he said four hundred nine. And um, nine, of but. course, it's a. Uh, I mean, the way activist groups calculate this is by um, using military expenditure as a subsidy for fossil fuels and um, things like accounting rules and so on. And, um, of course, Bill McKim is big on this um, CO2 externality thing. And, um, essentially, it's a bogus number. What we can see here is, um, let's take a look at oil. I mean, there's a lot of double and triple taxation at the pump, both in North America and Europe. And uh, there's a lot of subsidies for windmills and solar panels. So just to give you an example, in Germany we have a feed-in tariff for solar and wind power, which means they prioritize wind and solar power and all the other power plants have to stall, stall and um, reduce their output to compensate for the volatility created by these. And that is a massive subsidy, but nobody would calculate this in terms of dollars. And, uh, yeah, this, I mean, wind and solar are the most subsidized forms of energy per kilowatt hour output. That's a, that's a fact. And they don't get taxed as much as fossil fuels, and they get a lot of subsidies. So there's really no comparison here. Yeah, and we've looked into a bunch of these studies in advance and one says i think a trillion dollars a year mckibben sometimes likes to cite and it's all just it's i mean it gets away from what a subsidy actually is which is it's a you know preferential treatment of one industry over the other by giving our money uh to you know a particular industry and that happens directly with solar and wind that's what happened with solyndra that happens with a lot of other um so-called clean energy companies. What what they regard as subsidies here, it's some combination of they don't pay as many taxes as McKibben thinks they should. They're not paying a penalty for emitting CO2, which is a um, you know, which is a gas that's part of the process of producing fossil fuels that has, as I've said repeatedly, made us much safer uh, from climate. And yeah, and then they blame every military problem on the world in the world on the fact that we use oil and they pretend that if we used solar or something else we'd have no uh we'd have no military problems or we would even have a functioning military um neither of which is true so i talked about this in uh, one of our episodes called how to think about energy the issue, whole issue of subsidies and what's wrong with calling military expenditures subsidies uh, but in any case the the just the, the glaring reality if you look at the world market is that every country uses a lot of fossil fuels because they're the best Almost every country would rather use wind and solar. So, I mean, what, it, those are much more popular politically. That's why they get a lot more money. The problem is they're radically inferior technologies. Um, okay, let us go to the next one. All right, so the next two points are going to be McKibben's positive points about his... Uh, the sources of energy that we would be left with if all the energy that he is against would be outlawed. Two, 
first of these, and I'll call it point 14, 13, I guess, since I'm trying to keep in track here. Uh, 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 point 14, increasing energy and conservation can be highly effective. As early as 2009, the Wall Street consulting firm McKinsey & Company identified ways to save 23% of American energy use by 2020 at a cost, no, not at a cost, at a savings of $1.2 trillion. The International Energy Agency in September of this year, i.e. five weeks ago, said global transport could easily be 50% more efficient by 2050. The IEA has also identified ways to reduce the planet's energy demand by a third by mid-century with more efficient buildings. As you reduce demand, the chances of meeting more of it with renewable energy improve because... All right, so increasing energy and conservation can be highly... or increasing energy efficiency and conservation can be highly effective. Stefan, I'll, I'll let you start on this one. Well, yes, that is actually the exact opposite of the truth. What we found is with efficiency, the more efficient we get, the more we use the technology. So that is known under the name of Jevons' paradox by the economist William Stanley Jevons. And he found out in the 19th century already that with increasing efficiency of steam engines, the use of steam engines increased, of course. Because they were more, have become more feasible in various um, fields of application. And that's true, for example, with um, air travel. The more efficient we get, the more people travel by plane. And that's true in, in every energy-related field you can think of. The more efficient you get, the more people are able to use this technology. And you will have an increase in consumption of fuels for this. That's just what the facts are for more than a century, or probably for the entire history of mankind. Efficiency gains um, will not save energy, will not well, save consumption of fuels. Well, I think they do in a rational sense. So let, let's put it in the broader context of a, a principle that McKibben denies, which is that more energy is better. Like all things being equal, you always want more energy because there's always more work to be done. As I, I mentioned in this debate, for everyone to have the same amount of energy that you know, Germany uses, you would have to have three times more energy production. and The vast majority of that would, would come from fossil fuels. So you're talking about an energy-starved world, and McKibben's whole orientation is to assume that we use more than enough energy now, and that it's, so it's just a matter of, of of taking that energy, or taking the tasks we do now with energy, and then reducing the amount of energy that um, you know that will be necessary to do those tasks. Now, will that happen? Can that happen? Certainly, it can, and, and it will. All things being equal, because there is a huge economic incentive um, to do any given task with less energy. But if we're free, we'll certainly be doing more tasks as we should be. So the idea of re dramatically reducing energy use doesn't follow in the least from energy efficiency. It's like, I often think of it as, as the equivalent of money. Energy has a lot in common with money. It's, it's that fundamental to life. So someone can say to you, look, okay, I'll figure out how to get you. You might be able to get 20% more with your money in a couple of years. But that doesn't mean you get to take away 50% of my money or even 20% or even 10% or even 5%. All things being equal, more money is better. And it's my money. So... It's just the, you have to think of energy as this, as a as a value that's always a value, and more of it is always a value. So the way that works with the Jevons paradox is, people always look for better. Um, you know, it, it becomes, um, you know, the better steam engine becomes a you know a greater opportunity. Um, so more and more people will use it, or they'll use, or the same person will use more steam engines, or if you're you know if you're if it becomes cheaper, the energy becomes cheaper to make all the parts for computers, then computers will be cheaper. More people can buy computers, more people can run computers. Uh, so it's, it's a very virtuous process of, of increasing energy and increasing energy efficiency. But McKibben is butchering it to destroy energy, at which point energy efficiency wouldn't decrease anyway, and it, it wouldn't be very useful in any case. All right, let's go to his 
final one. Point 15, renewables really work. There's nothing speculative anymore about them. In fact, and again, this is why it's important to listen to dates and to evidence, there's a report this morning from the German minister, energy minister, Stephen Kohler, who works, of course, in the conservative government of Angela Merkel, that the country will easily beat even its own ambitious plans for renewable energy and generate more than half the country's power that way by 2025, and perhaps as high as two-thirds. All right, Stefan, I'm, I'm interrupting him just as he's ending with saying it's as high as, as two-thirds because I, since you happen to be from Germany, could you comment on the – I wrote about this if anyone saw it, but it on, on Master Resource, but if, could you comment about the energy minister, Stephen Kohler? <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting because I did never hear this name before and turns out there is no energy minister in Germany and – Stefan Kohler is uh, head of the German Energy Agency, which is a company in part sponsored by taxpayer money, but he does not hold any official government position, does not communicate any official government positions on energy. And in fact, he was very critical of the current approach of the German government, and he says, um, well, if we continue on this path, this will, this will fail, this energy transition. So, yeah, and in the, I mean, in the very news story, I mean, it, first of all, like, there's a report this morning. The report wasn't even from that morning. I mean, this guy just doesn't even, it was from a week before. All right, he might have read it that morning, but the report didn't come out that morning. Um, but Kohler specifically said if you did any research and weren't just, like, religiously, sort of a, like almost a cultist of this cause, who's just looking for, looking for cherry picked quotes and whatnot, Kohler explicitly said that this two-thirds idea would be a complete catastrophe. So take from that what you will. All right, let's go to the next uh, part of renewables really work. Already this year, there have been days when more than half the power came from solar panels within its borders. Germany is the one country that's taken this seriously, the one the one non-Scandinavian country that's taken this seriously. It's not simple what they're doing. It's requiring all kinds of innovation to deal with everything from the intermittency of renewable energy to grid integration. But as the energy minister, Mr. Kohler, said last Thursday, I think we can integrate it. Okay, so as the energy minister, Mr. Kohler, said last Thursday, I think we can integrate it. What, what's the deal with this half the power came from solar? <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, essentially a snapshot of one moment in time. So, and it actually is a really bad thing because, well, you have to think, when thinking of solar power and wind power, um, these are energy sources that turn on and off um, randomly. So they are depending on the weather. They are not controlled by human beings. And in an energy grid, you always need supply meet demand at every moment. And what a record production solar means that, let's say, you have a, you have a capacity of solar of X, and at one more, uh, moment in time, it produces X amount of energy. But for the rest of the year, it might only produce a tiny fraction of that. So on average, you get some small percentage in production. And, but that's very bad for the grid because the entire grid, the entire conventional energy sources have to compensate for this volatility because you always have to meet demand by your supply. And that's, so these record productions mean at one point in time you have a very high production and at the other time you have a very low production. And the more capacity of solar and wind you introduce into your net, into your grid, that means that the spread between minimum production and maximum production of these sources gets wider. And that's very bad. That's not something to celebrate. It's very expensive, very dangerous for the grid. And, uh, well, it works as long as you have a lot of conventional power sources in your grid. Yeah, so you mentioned the idea that none of the coal plants had been reduced. And later in the, in the debate, McKibben had this quip uh, about how you know, there's nothing when there's a when it's a sunny day. You know, there's a, there's no such thing as a solar spill, because 
he's joking as if oh, solar is so inherently safe and oil is so inherently dangerous. You know, he says a solar spill, that's what we call a sunny day. Uh, but in fact, a solar spill in this context, if you've got a serious amount of solar capacity on the network, uh, is like a, a giant jolt of unwanted electricity, right? Which is incredibly dangerous. Yes, and in fact, um, you can see the German energy grid on its own. You have to see the entire Europe European grid. And what Germany does at the expense of its neighboring countries, if you get this huge amount of surplus energy, let's say from the North Sea, where a lot of offshore wind parks are placed, uh, and you can't use it at the moment, then this energy waste, quote-unquote, has to be dumped into neighboring grids. And Poland, the eastern neighbor of Germany, is in the process of, process of installing technology, it's called phase shifter technology, to be able to cut off its own grid from the German grid to avoid this volatility spilling over into its own country. All right, let's play the last part of this last point. It's also not free. It takes money. Energy prices have gone up enough that 800,000 Germans out of 81 million are having trouble paying their electric bills. But the good news is that renewable energy is becoming steadily cheaper. Bloomberg, September 2012. Prices for solar panels have fallen 75% in the past three years. All right, I just want to make the point again about context where you, you really need a big picture. So he's taking one country, which as we've already seen, he's misrepresenting. The, again, his conclusion, the context for everything is his conclusion that we should essentially outlaw fossil fuels. He has no, he has no refutation for the point that I made here and made, I think, later that, that none of these technologies that he's saying are so great have replaced you know, a single coal plant or natural gas plant. In fact, they completely depend on those to back up their, their unreliable uh, power. And then his whole concession, his only concession that there might be some problem in his whole outlaw, outlawing policy is that 800,000 Germans out of 81 million are having trouble paying their electric bills. But don't worry, prices for solar panels, Bloomberg told us, is falling 75% in the past three years. And presumably that's going to make Stefan and all the other Germans uh, have cheap solar electricity. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the first thing is that, I mean, it's not 800,000 Germans um, have trouble paying their bills. I mean, a lot of more Germans have trouble paying their bills. But between 600 and 800,000 German households have failed to pay their bills in 2011 because it's so expensive. And they have been cut off the grid for that reason. Okay, I, I, I just want to jump in here. Like, for someone who talks about it's really important to care about facts, there's a big difference between a person and a household. And there's a, definitely a big difference between having trouble paying your electric bills, whatever that means, and just completely being unable to. And, and if you're talking about people who can't at all and they're being cut off power, which we know from Hurricane Sandy and just any life experience is horrible, then only imagine how many people in Germany are having difficulty paying their bills, who can't afford other things or, or who just have you're much less prosperous because they have these electricity bills yeah and then there's this fallacy of um, connecting falling prices for solar panels with uh, cheap energy because uh, that's that's not really exactly the same one would expect a source of energy to get cheaper over time that's true for oil in the 1950s it certainly was more expensive to drive a car than today even with all these taxes on it. But, I mean, the price for a solar panel, if you import it from China, is largely irrelevant to the total cost of solar energy. Because what you have to put into that equation is, you have to install the solar panel, you have to maintain it, you have to, uh, you have to create a lot more incapacity for solar than for a conventional source of energy. And uh, all the manual labor, all the energy going into this. And then, of course, you produce the problem of volatility in the entire grid because a solar panel cannot work on its own. It needs some buffer storage or some backup capacity from conventional sources. And this is creating cost. 
and that's not in the equation with Bill McKim. Yeah, so that's so those are those are the fifteen points. So essentially, the thing that is not in the equation with Bill McKibben is basically the, the vast, vast majority of facts that are relevant. And and you can't look at this kind of issue by just looking at random things that you read in the newspaper that are congenial um, to the conclusion that you've been making your money and your fame off of. You really need to look for, this is a big picture question, how do we get a big picture answer? And you want to look at at the major trends and in what direction. Um, but because McKibben is, is not taking an integrated perspective, he's able to completely ignore all the incredible benefits of, of a phenomenon and characterize it, quote-unquote, scientifically as, as a menace and thus ju justify his, his policy of outlawing it and you know getting many... Um, ignorant young people to think that they're doing the right thing by jumping along. And I think if, if looking at these 15 points teaches anything, it's that as a young person, if you want to do some good in the world, start with, with critical thinking. Start with demanding that people be clear on what their conclusion is and what the evidence is. Because if, if you follow a demagogue, um, you know, you're responsible for the destruction that he causes. Uh, I mean, maybe Stefan, you can comment on this a little bit, but you know, in Germany, one of the um, you know the major movements um, you know, during and before the time of Nazism was a green movement. I mean, it was much larger there uh, than it was here, and, and presumably those people felt very proud of themselves, and they thought they were doing the right. I mean, in a certain sense, they thought they were doing the right thing, but really, what they weren't doing was thinking. Any any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's not only one of the big movements before the Nazis, it was, I mean, part of the social and cultural thing that made Nazis po uh, popular. Um, that had a long tradition, it was very esoteric, and uh, a guy named, I think, Rudolf Steiner was his name, made this uh, ecologic um, agriculture very popular. And these are, I mean, these are they are playing with the emotions of people. There's this general general assumption that everything natural is good. And, um, yeah, it turns out you, you have to be disconnected from real nature to think that nature is really good because the natural environment, as you often say, is not giving us a long life expectancy and good health. It's just not true. Yeah, and, and I mean... If, even if you have that general view, which I think if you look at the facts is, is very problematic, um, anything that someone's saying, whether it's me or Stefan or, or Bill McKibben, needs, needs critical thinking. And always, what, are, what is he saying? What is the evidence? And if someone won't say what he's saying or he gives you some uh, bizarre collection of you know, economist you know, quotes from The Economist and citations from the morning paper, and it's and you know in some level that what he wants to do is incredibly dramatic, that doesn't give him more credibility that he can aggregate more newspaper clippings or that he can overwhelm you with 15 points or 60 points or 100 points. It, it means that, that something is going uh, very, very wrong. And again, what, what we need to ask for is, is real thinking. And real thinking involves clear conclusions, uh, clear evidence you know, that's clearly tied to reality. And uh, Stefan, I really appreciate you coming on and giving us uh, some of that evidence. Any, any parting thoughts? Well, as a general observation, I mean... I just want everyone to keep in mind that what have we seen so far empirically? We have seen incredible increase in GDP per capita on the entire world. We have seen life expectancy go up and so on. And we've seen much more dramatic changes on a geological time scale. And even if there's a strong human influence on climate change, that wouldn't justify banning fossil fuels at all, because 
these are the tools and the technology we need to cope with any change. All right. Well, I can't, can't top that. So, Stefan, thanks for, for coming on the program. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. I hope you, I hope you enjoyed that. That was, that was fun in a certain way. It's fun sometimes, sometimes frustrating. But I think it's really important, as I said before, to, to have a good example of how, of how distortion works, of how it's so possible to say something completely, completely wrong and have the appearance of being scientific. And if I could just give you one thing to take away, it's something I've probably repeated too many times, but, but even for myself, I just find it, find it helpful to remind myself of, I'm ever, I remember listening to something and I think something is off here, but I, I just, I don't know how to process it. And what is the conclusion? First question, what exactly is the conclusion? What exactly is the evidence? As soon as, as soon as I put myself there, it's, it's a compass and it tells me, okay, what is McKibben saying? Okay, well, he won't name his conclusion. That's a problem. Okay, what is it? Oh, it's, he wants to essentially outlaw fossil fuels. Okay, wow, that is a huge, that is a huge conclusion. That is that, you know, that is in the. That's like saying, you know, almost outlawing medicine. I mean, it's it's on that scale or outlawing antibiotics. So what he needs a lot of evidence to show that, and then it's okay. What's his evidence? Well, he mentions none of the evidence about the positive. So that that means that the whole thing is going to be a distortion. And then with his, his quote evidence, we can look at, at that in the, from the same perspective. What is the conclusion he's drawing here? Okay, all, you know, the oceans are being wrecked. Okay, what's the evidence? He's, he cites some oceanographer saying something very colorful and negative about the oceans. Okay, but then what's that person's evidence? Nothing. Um, and as I indicated, it's not that you, this, I'm not holding to the standard of you have to give all the evidence, but you have to give, you have to give is an overall indication of, of the, of the range of evidence and how, how the pieces of the puzzle fit together. And particularly what you're going to want is cause and effect, but a clear cause and effect. So not, not, oh, we made the oceans 30% more acid, which is a, a complete distortion. Um, but well, there, I mean, there's not much truth to what he said, but you would have to show something on the level of, look, this many ocean species are dying and it's, it's hurting human beings in this other way, and we can trace it directly to harms to human life. But if it's, if it's just some very vague statistic or his usual method, which is just some speculation to say, oh, well, someone estimated that in the next century, uh, crop yields are going to go down by 40%. That's just that's nothing. That's as if nothing has been said because those those things are so. It's, it would be such an achievement to be able to predict things on that level. So anything like that, unless someone gives a fantastic amount of evidence that you've got like the model of all time, it's just it's it's garbage. And there's I think a mind shift that's important of being able to realize that someone can string together words and it can just be complete garbage. I mean, in the sense of there's no evidence whatsoever. And from my experience, just getting in a given, getting into particular fields such as energy, the more I learn about it, the more I realize there's just so much of the work that's done is just, it's just wrong. It's just someone, particularly when it comes to the speculation, when they're either trying to predict the future or they're trying to attribute uh, some present thing to something it's you're dealing with such complex territory that it's just very very easy to go wrong and people have all sorts of some of them are part of this ideological movement against global warming uh, a lot of them their whole salary depends on on accepting a certain class of assignments speculating about all the negative things that co2 are doing so when you've got these complicated questions it's just possible to have just a, a complete deluge of of falsehoods or of arbitrary things and when again this idea of what is the conclusion what is the evidence that's like a, a razor that allows you to kind of slash through the clutter and see what what case has he given me and 
certainly citing an authority is not is not giving a case you're, even when you're dealing with these kinds of matters it's not that it's not that well let's say experts it's not that experts are irrelevant but the job of experts the job of experts is to explain is to discover the truth and then explain it to you it's not to just make some authoritarian declaration to you about the truth. That is, that is useless because you don't know, if you don't know exactly what the truth is and why, why it's the truth, where it comes from, there's no way in the world you'll be able to apply it. So if, if some, some oceanographer just comes out and says, global warming is destroying the oceans, that's a worthless statement. Uh, I mean, both because we can integrate it with our common sense and, and see that there, there is no such trend that there's any, there's any, there's no clear consequence at all toward us that he specified. But more to the point, it, it's it's meaningless. It's not it's not at all useful. What would be useful is it said, look, here's what we have observed. Um, here's what I've concluded. Here's how here's how the cause and effect works. Here's why this is the only thing. Now it's. It, you might say, well, if, if, you're, if you're holding yourself to the standard of actually explaining things, you can't make 15 points in 10 minutes or 12 minutes. And that is exactly true. You cannot. Uh, but if you're, trying to, if you're trying to do that, then you're just trying to be an authority and you're trying to uh, intimidate people. It's not, it is the opposite. Uh, it's the opposite of, of science. And in a sense, I mean, there's a sense in which it's, it's really... Uh, unethical. I mean, it is unethical to do that to an audience to to just swarm them with things that they can't process. But I mean, McKibben himself is a victim of his own methodology. Now, not as much of a victim because he's he should know much better what he's doing. But he himself is just swarming himself with all these studies that he can't make heads or tails of, and he just he just sort of uh, you know he's just like has a perpetual IV of these like poisonous conclusions, you know, running through his veins and, and, you know, to the point where, uh, he just, you know, he reads the paper and it's just, Oh, here's a quote from the German energy minister, allegedly. And there is no German energy minister, it turns out. And then, Oh, he said 66%. Oh, well, it turns out that 66% the guy said was, was complete suicide and wouldn't happen. But it's just, if you're on the premise of my job, is to process hundreds and my job as almost anyone, but let alone, you know, a journalism or a journalism student or a journalist, I guess, that's, that's my job to process the whole world of scientific studies. Even though I'm not a scientist or a specialist in anything, that is not a valid assignment. Now, what could be valid is if you, if you have some expertise on scientific methodology or that's your focus, you could look at, okay, yeah, this, this study doesn't seem to be good evidence. This study doesn't seem to be good. At, this study does. But you can't just be this universal scholar who says, oh, definitively, this is happening to the oceans. This is happening in the forest. And it's caused by this. And it's caused by that. That is an insult to science. If Bill McKibben is capable of making definitive conclusions about every scientific realm, and if you're capable of grasping them, then, then science would just be the easiest thing in the world. But the reason that it's not, the reason that it's, it's, it's so disputed, these things are hard because it's really hard to figure out cause and effect. And it's certainly really hard to extrapolate from our, our knowledge of cause and effect into the future. When someone is, is making these claims and demanding that you accept them on these very difficult or very speculative issues, that is not, that's not ethical. Uh, the person themselves probably doesn't understand it, and you should know that you can't, uh, you can't understand it. So the thing to demand is, okay, give me, give me your overall conclusion and give me what the overall evidence is, and then answer these objections. And if someone, if someone can do that, then then you know that's that's your best possible approach. Of course, you're not going to know everything. You're not going to be able to predict every contingency, but that's really, really no one can. But what we can demand is that everyone present uh, their scientific conclusions honestly. And if they don't know any science, then they should be honest uh, about that too. Or if they have limits to their scientific knowledge, 
and I mean to say Bill McKibben has limits to his scientific knowledge is like you know saying there are limits to his ability to dunk a basketball. Uh, I mean, but in my own case, I, I I know you know quite a bit of the science of this, but the vast 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 majority of questions in these fields I do not know. So as from that perspective, my focus has to be separating what I do know from what I don't know and trying to at least know an overview of the things that matter and giving the overall conclusion. So the overall conclusion is fossil fuels are completely indispensable to human life. They have demonstrably made our environment better. They've made our climate safer. Uh, and what Bill McKibben is proposing to do is uh, it amounts to suicide and the entire movement he's associated with should be disbanded um, and should be uh, should be regarded as an, as a as a profoundly as a profoundly immoral movement. And I hope that going forward we can really take the, the separate that movement, which is, is a, just a movement of mass destruction, from the idea of idealism. The idea that it's idealistic. If you find something and you allegedly find some problems to it and you just try to smash it, that's not idealism. That is the stuff of ruining societies. So 350.org, uh, do the math. I think it's, there's also fossil free. Bill McKibben, these are, not, these are not idealists. These are destroyers. These are not, they're not builders. They're blockers and really they're wreckers. So... We're going to continue in this fight. Bill McKibben is certainly not the only one uh, we'll fight against, but he is the he is the leader. So I'm glad glad he uh, agreed to debate me. Uh, and I imagine this will not be the last time we run into one another. But it'll be the last time for a while that we deal with him so much on this show. But I hope it was a, I hope it was an educational experience. I cer certainly learned a lot preparing for the debate, doing the debate, analyzing the debate, talking about these issues. And I hope you did too. And we've come to the end of the show. As always, questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. We'll be back soon. Another great topic, another great guest. But until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.